Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Russia's military buildup along its border with Ukraine has the world on edge of a possible escalation of a conflict that has been taking place in the eastern Ukraine since 2014. With the drumbeat of war getting louder, it seems more of a case of when and not if an invasion and a full-scale invasion takes place. Joining The Crisis Next Door is Michael Kaufman, Director of Russia Studies at the Center for Naval Analysis and a fellow at the Center for New American Security. Michael, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thanks for having me on your program. Michael, let's talk about the current buildup of Russian forces along its border with Ukraine. Uh, We've seen this ongoing. Where are we going to be as far as a tipping point is concerned when Russia is fully ready to attack Ukraine? We've seen field hospitals coming in. What is the next signal before we know that Russia is ready to go all in? You know, unfortunately, the answer is it really depends on what they intend to do and their uh, actual political objectives and, and supporting military plans. So it's fair to say at this stage that Russia wanted to conduct a more limited military operation. It is in position to do that now, that is today. But my suspicion is that they have more maximalist aims and that if they intend a large-scale military operation, something that's previously not been seen in the past in Ukraine, and they are perhaps some weeks away from being in position to do that based on the pace uh, of the current military buildup and the kind of capabilities and assets and, and forces that I think we're seeing them put into place. And keep in mind that my point of view comes from based on what we can see via open sources. And so you have to take that with two big grains of salt. The first is that using public sources, you definitely don't see everything, not at all. Um, so a number of things might already be there. And second is that often what you see is delayed. That is, when you're assessing a buildup that you think might be heading towards a military operation in the coming weeks, you have to be frank with yourself and appreciate that, you know, you're seeing things uh, in time lapse, right? And and you might be late to judge uh, certain capabilities arriving uh, into the region, right? Not everything is visible at the same time. We're certainly not omniscient. Russia obviously has several military options at its disposal here. What do you think are the most likely military options that Vladimir Putin and his generals are considering? So I think that uh, they've somewhat been trapped over the past years from using force to compel Ukraine towards signing settlements, but not being able to actually enforce Russian preferences. That is, 
after several offensive, they, they still have been able to achieve political aims. That's why I fully believe that they're not going to repeat that which hasn't worked for Russia in the past. This is not going to be a limited military incursion designed to just compel Ukraine towards yet another political settlement uh, to try to achieve Russian aims. I think the Russian uh, objectives are going to be probably one of three scenarios, and, and of course they're going to stay emergent. Um, it's very hard to, when you plan military operation, to really see past the uh, past the opening phases of it, but most likely Moscow will either attempt uh, to conduct regime change in Ukraine and, and most likely drive to encircle the capital, Kiev, uh, perhaps seize Ukraine's eastern regions and then arrange a settlement whereby they tie withdrawal to implementation, basically try to achieve their aims this way. This involves uh, Ukraine's regions east of the Dnieper River, a fairly sizable part of the country. Um, or if if those don't work, a much more expensive and, and less likely uh, option, but one that definitely remains on the table, is partitioning the country and essentially perhaps creating an, an alternate government and state that's pro-Russian in either Ukraine's eastern or even uh, southern regions. And this, this, I think, is less likely, but should definitely not be discounted. Um, there's strong evidence that Russian military plans include an occupation force. So they're clearly considering the possibility of having to occupy some territory for a period of time beyond even having follow-on forces uh, backing their, their sort of offensive maneuver formations. Russia obviously outnumbers the Ukrainian military by a, a sizable number and percentage. What kind of shape is the Ukrainian armed forces in in order to provide some sort of effective defense against a potential Russian invasion? How long could they hold out for? I, I know that Western arms are making their way in, but is that going to be enough to, to give Ukraine some time to, to hold Russia at bay for some time? Mm, you know, it's very hard to kind of war game out. Conflicts of this type, uh, now war is highly contingent. Depends on what the Russian military campaign actually is and how Ukrainians choose to respond to it. Uh, the biggest, the biggest differences between these militaries are not so much quantitative; they're qualitative, right? The Russian ground forces are backed by one of the world's largest uh, uh, parks of fixed-wing tactical aviation, rotary aviation. They are much better equipped better trained and the like. So the force multipliers really begin to stack. It's not a question of, you know, one side having 50,000 troops, another side just having 100,000. And and it's a quantity of asymmetry. The quality of asymmetry is quite stark. Green's military has gotten a lot better over the years in terms of tactical level capabilities, but it's structurally deficient in a number of important ways and fundamentally an experience with combined arms maneuver warfare at this, at this higher level. As most of Ukraine's experience has been and kind of limited position warfare and skirmishes uh, at the line of control in the Donbass. So I think it's fair to say that, well, the Ukrainian military is certainly large and capable enough to impose some cost of attrition on Russian forces, especially if the Russian scheme is actually a more kind of limited incursion, which I find deeply unlikely. Um, it's, it's not well positioned to defend what is first the largest country in Europe, and Ukraine geographically is the largest country in Europe, rest assured of that, against what is principally the largest military in Europe, outside of you know the the NATO alliance. 
So the the matchup, all things being equal, is very much in Russia's favor. And Russia doesn't even need a superiority in numbers because it has substantial overmatch in terms of force multipliers and what the Russian military can do as a force compared to the much more limited capabilities of the Ukrainian military. And said, Ukrainian military definitely has options. It very much depends on how they choose to play it. That's a big question, the answer to which we do not know. Uh, they do have a number of combined arms maneuver brigades. They have artillery and support brigades. They have uh, territorial brigades, essentially volunteers, that are kind of, you know, a reserve. Um, they, it's definitely not the military 2014-2015, so this would be, to some extent, a much bloodier fight. Uh, but in, in terms of the way they are positioned, Ukraine military is deeply disadvantaged because Russian forces deployed in Belarus, northeast, east of Ukraine, and south of Crimea, ring Ukraine, essentially in envelopment. So if you picture a multi-axis attack, uh, it could very easily split Ukrainian forces, envelop them, fragment them in individual pockets, and, and create big challenges for a much smaller military with much, uh, much more limited capacity for uh, maneuver and logistics to be able to defend this tremendously large space. Michael, you mentioned the territorial brigades, and we've seen the reports of civilian mobilization in preparation for defense of Ukraine. Obviously, not the same as a, a well-equipped armed force going up against Russia, but how effective can a civilian mobilization be? And what does that at least tell you about the country's morale facing this potential invasion? You know, Ukraine's response, to be honest, has been kind of schizophrenic because the political leadership is so, so frightened by the prospect of the threat of this invasion essentially killing the Ukrainian economy before Russia's, you know, even does anything militarily, right? Because if you look at Ukrainian bond spreads, uh, uh, foreign direct investment le- leaving, the need for Ukraine's uh, central bank to prop up the currency, Ukraine's act under heavy economic pressure. So the political leadership is trying to maintain calm while also making some preparations for defense. But guess what? You cannot prepare and mobilize people for defense of a nation while also saying that the threat of invasion isn't really there. Right, because you're trying to fight the battle of the economy. And that's the trap that Ukraine's political leadership is in. And so a lot of what you're seeing are very limited volunteer efforts. The honest answer is Ukraine is not uh, preparing for defense, at least from my point of view, um, nearly as seriously as it should be. And the two reasons for that are, first, the leadership trying to defend the economy and worried that there's going to be tremendous political instability if they lean forward and acknowledging the threat of invasion. But the second is the mobilization trap that they're in. If Ukraine um, actually pays the economic price of going to mobilization right now, they're worried that that's the pretext that Russia is looking for, that they're going to point the finger at, uh, at Ukraine's leadership and say, ah, look, they're trying to retake the Donbass, uh, the separatist regions, and they're preparing for an attack, and then use that to justify a preemptive war, right? And that's not uncommon in history, being stuck in a, in a mobilization trap of sorts. So, you know, the Ukrainian leadership is just uh, a trap between a set of, of bad and worse options at this stage. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about Russia's imminent invasion of Ukraine with Michael Kaufman, director of Russia studies at the Center for Naval Analysis and a fellow at the Center for New American Security. I've seen you refer to it as the ostrich policy. Are there any decent options here for Kiev in Zelensky? So, yeah, I, I, I'm a bit 
uh, critical of it because I I think that the right thing to do in a situation like this is to uh, really you know engage in statecraft, lean forward in terms of leadership, acknowledge that the threat is real, make clear what Ukraine is doing to deter possible uh, Russian invasion and the like, uh, and and trust the public. There isn't a panic in in Ukrainian public. Just to be clear, folks don't really appreciate Ukrainians are very lackadaisical about this whole thing. They think they've been living under the threat of aggression this whole time. This is yet another scare of blowover. They have huge status quo bias. They think this is this is like any other day. It really isn't, though. Um, and and the leadership is in denying it is trying to you know it's kind of the rookie rookie's polo, uh, political attempt to manage uh, a rapidly developing negative story. The first thing they do is deny rather than actually you know lean into the narrative and try to lead it. And that's why I call it the ostrich strategy, because, you know, the United States has made clear that the threat of invasion is, is, is severe. It's very likely to come potentially in, the, uh, in February. And a number of other countries have said the same. And Zelensky is basically now looking like he's out there essentially saying that the earth is flat. You know, uh, rather than uh, acknowledging the facts on the ground, shaping that narrative for the public, and stepping forward as a leader. That's why I'm critical, and I call it kind of more the ostrich strategy. Michael, has Putin gone too far to pull back and not lose face? Is he at the point where he almost has to act and do something in Ukraine in order to maintain his global image? So, I mean, I don't think he's gone too far. Uh, a leader can always back down, and, and leaders of great powers do back down all the time. But he definitely will suffer external and internal audience costs. There's no way that Putin can back down without paying a significant price. He has raised this to a very, very high level in terms of stakes and in uh, in course of bargaining, right? If he backs down now, a lot of people will say that not only was he bluffing, but more importantly, he was successfully deterred. He'll end up in the worst place, which is being seen as highly aggressive and resistible at the same time. And it's going to have big internal audience costs as well, not with the Russian people, but with the Russian elite. You know, at the end of the day, Russia's a, a personalized authoritarian system, right? And uh, his power very much depends on his ability to manage coalitions of elites. And he's going to take a big hit if his own elites see him as incompetent and reckless, basically launching wild gambits like this, making outrageous ultimatums and demands, and then following through on nothing. Um, taking a big uh, hit in foreign policy in terms of Russian interests and preferences, and then just backing down. Uh, I, I just don't. I've, I've studied Russia and, and followed Russian leadership in the military for many, many years. I've just never known Putin to play it that way. And Michael, we tend to focus on what Putin wants, at least here in, in the Western media. But what about the Russian elites? It, does Putin's policy with Ukraine? have the general backing of Russia's elites, or are they simply going along with Putin for the time being? They're going to have to go along. I think some of the more hardline folks who uh, have influence with him are definitely supportive of it. But the overall Russian elite, absolutely not. They, this is going to have tremendous costs and risks, and I don't think they're necessarily supportive of those gambit. Although, um, many are, from my impression, are kind of ambivalent about the proposition of war with Ukraine. I think their biggest concern is not losing, it's, it's winning. It's, they definitely um, they definitely don't want to see worst-case scenarios where Russia occupies Ukraine and then uses money or resources to, to develop it, because it would be their money and their resources, right? Um, and, and they're very much after uh, their own 
their own interests. Plus, the consequences in terms of sanctions from the United States and European countries might be pretty significant. Do you think those Western sanctions might be enough to deter an invasion, or do you think Putin is willing to risk uh, some sort of retribution from the West outside of direct military intervention? Highly skeptical. Track record of sanctions and deterring states and using force to pursue vital interests is awful. Um, and consistently has failed in the past in this conflict, so I'm deeply skeptical of that. But this is going to be a great test of that, I'll tell you. There are a few times where you can see a testable proposition where one particular action is going to very clearly show you what's true and what's not. So we might find out in the coming weeks which of those uh, stories is right. Michael, what of the European response? It's fractured with differing levels of support, Germany in particular being singled out for providing minimal assistance compared to other European nations. It's obviously got to please Putin to see this fracturing. What do you think of Europe and its response right now and how it's handling this? You know, it, it's not bad. It definitely could be better. I know it's a good response, but so let's, we'll talk about first the, the good. There's a lot of allied consensus in general on uh, agreeing to sanctions and other costs imposed on Russia in the event of Russian aggression. Um, let's talk about the bad. There's disagreement amongst key states like Germany and France about what to do and what the actual uh, assessment is of the current situation. Germany doesn't see a Russian invasion imminent. France also skeptical and thinks that there should be an alternative to European approach to negotiating with Russia rather than more of a unified one. So there are disagreements there, uh, but but I think on on some in, important uh, uh, policies they're likely to be on board. And let's talk about the ugly, which is well, what a great uh, showing for the European Union. The European Union is completely non-existent in this, begging desperately for a seat at the table or for some kind of relevance. So all those conversations about European strategic autonomy, um, when the rubber meets the road, it's very clear that without the United States, Europeans can't deter Russia. They can't lead their way out of a problem like this. And this is a very good example of where we are with Europe in 2022. And Michael, do you see a long-term U.S. retrenchment from Europe, uh, given everything that's going on right now? And and how does that aid Putin going forward in his vision of Europe? So the U.S. has made clear that Europe is a secondary theater now, that the primary theater is Indo-Pacific. And that's a big challenge for the United States because we have resource constraints and our strategy is much more oriented towards prioritizing the strategic contest with China, right? And and Russians know that. That's part of the reason why they issued the demands. The price for stabilizing the relationship with them and trying to park it was always going to be very high, and it was going to get much higher as soon as we made clear that Europe's a secondary theater and we're trying to deleverage from that theater, right? Um, so that being said, I do see a potential for general U.S. retrenchment, but I'm skeptical we're going to retrench that much from Europe. I think that uh, we're going to have to balance the sort of pacing threat that China is with a persistent threat that Russia is going to be. And it's very clear that Russia gets a huge vote of where it's going to be or where it's going to fall in the U.S. agenda, like how the extent to which we're going to prioritize it. And attempts to deprioritize Russia or park the relationship so we can focus elsewhere or focus even on our domestic policy issues. Well, if we tried that. Doesn't look like it's worked. So it looks like Russia's uh, 
much more capable than some folks thought in setting the security agenda in Europe. And I don't expect that situation to change dramatically. Michael, do the Baltic nations need to worry about Russia? Uh, How about Poland? How far do you think Putin is willing to go in order to implement his vision of what he thinks Europe should be? I'm deeply skeptical on that score. I think that they they're they've always been a threat of of coercion, but not of invasion. I don't think Russia's expansionist in the sense that it wants to take the Baltic states back or you know repartition Poland. That said, there's going to be more demand signals from them for reassurance and for U.S. forward deployed forces and the like. If there's uh, another Russian uh, offensive in Ukraine, that won't be surprising at all. In fact, I think the United States is prepared to to exchange and force posture in Europe in, in response to uh, that kind of conflict. Uh, but in terms of Russian names, I just don't see it. This is very much about Ukraine and also and also about Belarus. Uh, and I can get more into that into that conversation. But uh, I don't I don't think the Baltic states themselves are as worried as they often come off uh, about the threat of conventional invasion. I think they're much more worried about subconventional scenarios, you know, um, uh, diversion, uh, insurgency, use of special forces, information operations, uh, use of offensive cyber capabilities, other forms of coercion, both kinetic and non-kinetic. Russia obviously has many capabilities within its hands in order to uh, wreck all kinds of uh, concern and headaches across its border countries. Uh, Michael, one final thought from you. Uh, We've been seeing February, late February mentioned as a potential invasion date. I'm sure there's not a specific date that's out there for anybody to have their hands on. But in your best view, what would be the earliest legitimate time for Russia to make its move on Ukraine with all of its forces in place? Yeah, this is, of course, a bit guesswork. My best guess is perhaps in the coming two to three weeks. Doesn't mean that. Russia will do it, just my personal view on what I think they will be as soon as in position to be able to do it. And we will certainly be holding our breath in the meantime, as it does seem like it is imminent. Michael, want to thank you very much for taking the time to join us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. We've been joined by Michael Kaufman, Director of Russia Studies at the Center for Naval Analysis and a fellow at the Center for New American Security. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.